0: This is Ethics Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Ethics Bites is a series of interviews on applied ethics produced in association with The Open University. For more information about Ethics
1: Bites and about The Open University, go to open2.net.
0: The science of genetics is advancing faster than our moral intuitions can cope. No longer are so-called designer babies just a figment of the imagination restricted to the realm of sci-fi movies. The implications are huge, and not just for babies and reproduction. We can modify our genetic makeup as adults too. Take sport. In theory, we can now manipulate genes to make athletes run faster, jump higher, throw further. Does that mean sport will evolve into a form of competition between quasi-robots? And if so, would it matter? The distinguished and genetically unmodified Harvard professor Michael Sandel believes that we should be extremely cautious in our attempts to shape and master nature, and indeed to master our shape. Michael Sandel, welcome to Ethics Bites.
2: Thanks, it's good to be with you.
1: Now the topic we want to focus on today is genetic enhancement, specifically enhancement in the area of sport. I wonder if you could just sketch the kinds of enhancements that are possible now and will be in the near future using genetic
2: techniques. As far as sports are concerned, we hear a lot now about blood doping and the use of steroids for performance enhancement in athletes. And in the not distant future, it will be possible to use various forms of gene therapy, for example, to enhance muscle. And that, I think, is what, in the area of sport, will raise the most difficult questions.
1: I wonder if you could just give some general pointers as to why you're against enhancement.
2: I should first clarify, I'm in favor of the use of biomedical technologies for medical purposes for the sake of health. So, for example, vaccination enhances the immune system, vaccination against smallpox, let's say. I'm all for that because it promotes health. So any use of new genetic technologies to repair injury or to cure or prevent disease I'm all in favor of. What I've criticized is the use of biomedical technologies, not for medical purposes, but for non-medical enhancements, for performance enhancement in athletes, to try to select the genetic traits of children, to try to enhance memory, to enhance height, let's say among children who may be perfectly healthy but want to be taller or their parents want them to be taller, Sex selection, choosing a boy rather than a girl, these are the kinds of non-medical uses of genetic engineering that I've criticized.
1: Quite central to your discussion here is the difference between a cure for something which is a deficiency and an enhancement that takes us beyond what's normal.
2: Yes, and I'll quickly acknowledge that there can be hard cases right at the boundary. What about braces for orthodontia, for example? Is that related to health, or is it merely cosmetic? Is it just to improve one's bite, or is it to fit a certain look that's become widespread in our societies? That would be an example of a hard case. But the underlying difference between a cure and a non-medical enhancement requires a normative idea of health and of human flourishing. Health is about restoring or preserving normal human faculties which are a constitutive ingredient but a very limited part of the good life. In sport, enhancement is the
1: name of the game, and that's what most athletes want to do, enhance performance, and they're prepared to do anything within the law and often things which are pushing at the edge or going beyond the law. How could you argue to an athlete that they shouldn't be using techniques which are available to them for enhancement?
2: There are two obvious arguments. One is safety. Steroids, for example, have long-term medical risks. A second familiar reason is fairness. If there is a general ban in the Olympics on various forms of enhancement or blood doping or various forms of muscle enhancement, then if some use it surreptitiously, illicitly, it puts the others at a disadvantage. But I don't think that safety and fairness are the only reasons to oppose genetic enhancement in sports.
1: In your book, The Case Against Perfection, you use the example of of Tiger Woods, who allegedly had his eyesight dramatically improved from myopia to very good vision by laser technology. Now, that seems to be perfectly acceptable. He could have worn glasses and achieved a similar sort of effect. Why is that all right, but an enhancement beyond that not okay?
2: Right. Beyond safety and fairness... My main objection to the use of performance-enhancing genetic therapies, for example, has to do with the worry that it will corrupt sports and athletic competition as a place where we admire the cultivation and display of natural gifts. It will distance us from the human dimension of sport, if you imagine a future When it were possible to engineer a bionic athlete, let's say in baseball, which is my favorite sport, who could hit every pitch for a home run of 600 feet, it would be maybe an amusing spectacle, but it wouldn't be a sport. We might admire the pharmacist or the engineer, but would we admire the athlete? We would lose contact with the human dimension, the display of natural human gifts that I think is essential to what we admire and appreciate in sports. You could
1: have a superb hitter, but what about a superb pitcher? And when you've got those two together, it seems to me that genetic enhancement would produce a wonderful sport, just as with soccer. If you have a team full of people who are as good as Pelé, that would be wonderful to watch.
2: Would it if we knew that all of the players were bionic athletes, robots in effect, if you take it to the extreme? We might find it amusing to see robots or machines perform great athletic feats, but would we even consider them athletic feats or human athletic feats? There are technology-laden sports like auto racing. I've never been able to understand the appeal of auto racing myself, but I think what makes auto racing maybe a sport or a game, but not an athletic endeavor, is that it's mainly the machines that we're watching, not the human excellence. Well, take marathon running. That is
1: actually a paradigm case of competitive athleticism. Any major athlete now who's a serious marathon runner, they use all kinds of technological means to enhance their performance. And that doesn't detract from the sport. If they're doing it within the law, it seems to me it's amazing to watch these people. People running sub-five miles over and over again are really almost like a different species from me, but it's still wonderful to watch. But we would
2: still want to know what sort of training was enabling them to do that. And isn't there a difference between great training and ingesting a drug or going in for uh, some kind of genetic therapy? Here's an extreme way of testing your idea about the marathon. It's true that new technologies sometimes do make for a better race, but that's because they bring out more fully the skills and the excellences that the best athletes display. Once marathon runners ran barefoot, And then along came someone and invented a running shoe. Some might have said that corrupts the race. I think that's an enhancement that actually perfects rather than corrupts the race because it enables the race to be a better test of who is the best runner, removing contingencies like stepping on a sharp pebble. Take another extreme. In the Boston Marathon some years ago, The winner crossed the finish line first, was given her prize, but then it was discovered she had used a rather unusual means of enhancement. After she left the starting line, she hopped in the subway and rode it most of the way, got out, ran across the finish line. Now, what is the difference between a running shoe and the subway? Both are technologies that enhance the ability to complete the race, but one of them corrupts the purpose of the sport, and that's the test we should use with new technologies. I think it's an easy
1: answer there because the constitutive rules don't allow you to go on the subway. But there's no
2: limit on the running shoe you can use, but there is on the mode of transport apart from shoes. Appealing to the constitutive rules, if by that you mean the rules that happen to be in effect set down by the governing body of the sport, I don't think that's sufficient to reach the normative question because we have to think about it from the standpoint of people who are setting the rules. The Olympic Committee today is trying to decide whether to permit runners and skiers to use a special oxygen chambers that runners might sleep in to enrich the red blood cells, to enable the blood cells to carry more oxygen. The effect is the same as taking EPO, which is a hormone that increases the ability of the blood to carry oxygen, or blood doping, which are illegal. So the question is, what should the rules be What technologies should the law allow? And for that, we can't just appeal to the law. Your argument
1: relies on some idea of what is natural. And I'd like to hear what makes something natural. Because on one reading, anything that a human being does is natural.
2: Right, and the inventiveness, one could argue, that leads to the invention of these biotechnologies is itself a natural human pursuit. So that's true. My argument against enhancement, whether in the sports context or whether we're talking about creating designer children, is not to valorize or to sanctify nature as such. There are lots of things that are bad in nature, polio, for example, or malaria. I'm all in favor of using biotechnology to banish those facts of nature. So I think that the conception that I need to... Explain what it is that troubles us about enhancement is some idea to do with the appreciation of the gifted character of human powers and talents and achievements. That not everything about us is at our disposal, subject to our desire to master or dominate or manipulate nature. There is a certain hubris when human beings overreach and try to exert dominion over all of nature, including human nature. So I'm more worried about the human dispositions and the hubris that lies behind the drive to perfect our nature than I am concerned to sanctify or protect nature as such.
1: That notion of giftedness seems to imply somebody giving, and the obvious candidate is God. God gives us certain natural attributes, and it's for us to understand and develop those. But if you're an atheist or an agnostic,
2: why would anybody take your view on this seriously? It's a very good question. I want to make the case the ethic of giftedness can be supported by various religious views that see God as the giver, but that that is not the only way of making sense of the idea of giftedness. We commonly speak of the athlete's gift, the musician's gift without necessarily attributing that gift to God. All the ethic of gift requires is an awareness and appreciation that not everything about us is the product of our own will or our own creation. It points to the moral importance of a certain attitude of restraint, even humility, in the face of what's been given to us. Some would say We should exercise that humility because to do otherwise would be to play God. But I think humility in the face of the given can also be understood in secular terms. And in the book you
1: use three kinds of argument against those who think that we should master anything that we can master.
2: Yes, well, I think that three important features of our moral landscape would be transformed if we really did come to think of ourselves and were, wholly self-made men and women. I think that we would lose a certain important capacity for humility and restraint, not only with respect to our own natural talents, but especially with respect to our children. It's an important fact about children that they are not wholly the products of their parents' will or the instruments of their ambition. So I think humility is very much at stake here. Also, I think there would be a kind of explosion of responsibility if people were held responsible for everything about them. It's morally redeeming and morally important that we aren't morally responsible for everything about us and, for that matter, for everything that our children are or become. Finally, I think the moral basis of solidarity would be eroded if we came to think of ourselves as wholly self-made and wholly self-sufficient. What then
1: would you say to a child who, knowing you had sufficient funds and there was available technology, who said to you, look, Dad, I really, really wanted to be good at sport. You're the only one who wouldn't give me that, and you could have done it.
2: I would say go out and practice a bit longer.
1: And the child's going to say, practice isn't going to get me beyond all these genetically enhanced school colleagues I've got. I'm always going to be last in the race, and that's your responsibility.
2: Well, what I would say... Is I would invite my child to ask himself or herself whether those genetically remastered or souped up schoolmates weren't missing an important part of the purpose of sports and maybe even the joy of the competition, that some of the joy and some of the pride in success would be diminished if it were the product of a pill or tweaking of the genes. In
1: sport, it seems to me this is a losing battle because sports people all over the world are already using every enhancement they can possibly find. Do you think that the world is worse for that?
2: I think that the world is and will be the so insofar as the cumulative effect of technological enhancement and genetic enhancement will be a slide from sport to spectacle. Some people suggest, well, let the two exist side by side. Have races where there are no holds barred, where all technologies are permitted, souped up athletes, and have a second race for free-range slowpokes. And see which commands the greater audience. That's the challenge that is made by the defenders of enhancement. I think that in the short run, people might flood to the spectacle to see the robotic athletes. But I think in time, the audience will wane because spectacle exerts a certain allure, but only for a time because it swamps or diminishes and erodes the human element, the nuance, the subtlety, the complexity of human beings negotiating with the limits of their own capacities. So I think the ratings will rise for a time, but then fade. Michael Sandel, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Ethics Bytes was produced in association with The Open University. You can listen to more Ethics Bytes on open2.net, where you'll also find supporting material. Or you can visit www.philosophybytes.com to hear more philosophy podcasts.